welcome to the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. Lucas Oil, track proven, race ready. Find a Lucas Oil retailer at lucasoil.com. You know, one of the great things about my job is I get to meet a lot of people who are uh, wonderful storytellers, not just successful racers or people within the racing industry, but they have some wonderful stories to tell you about racing gone by, different days and different eras. And I think the guy who is the best at it that I've ever met is a man who this book is titled after, Brian Redmond, Daring Driver's Deadly Tracks. It's an amazing book. Brian Redmond, of course, the IMSA GT champion, an F5000 champion, two-time winner of the 12 Hours of Sebring. He won the 1970 Targa Florio, and he's a four-time winner of the Spa 1000 Kilometer, just to name a few. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Rob. Nice to be here. Well, it has to be nice to be here because you just survived Hurricane Dorian. What was that all about? How did, where were you? Well, we've got a an old racing friend who was an Imsolites uh, camel champion, Howard Cherry, and he yes. has a family house, an old family house, on a place called Dickey's Key, uh, which is directly opposite Manawar. Uh, but is only available by boat. And this was our fourth or fifth time that uh, we were invited, you know, to go and spend a few days there. And it was a real last-minute decision. You know, it was like oh, four man. days before we just went. And uh, uh, that was on the Sunday. And on the Tuesday, we saw the hurricane warnings and how far away, you know, seven or 800 miles away at that point. But Wednesday, the warnings were definitely getting more serious in terms of Category 4 or Category 5. And so we then decided it might be a good idea to fly back to Florida. But, of course, there were no seats available on any of the flights because everybody had the same idea. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So how, how did you get through? What, what did you experience? It was unbelievable. We, uh, first of all, on Sunday morning at about nine o'clock, we were watching uh, television. We were watching the Belgian Grand Prix from Spa Francorchamps. Yeah. And the power went off. And because that's a fairly frequent occurrence in the Bahamas, there is a generator about 50 feet in a small building behind the house. So I went and fired it up, went back, started watching the Grand Prix again. And then 40 minutes into that, the wind started rising and the rain falling and the power went out again. So now the generator was running, but no power. So there was a short circuit. And then, you know, it really all hell broke loose. We were downstairs and water started coming in. That's where the bedrooms are. And uh, we quickly, you know, got our things together and got our cases. And we went upstairs to what is the living area, the second floor. And then all hell broke loose. I mean, it was unbelievable. The water came four and a half feet through the bottom floor. And now we can't hear anything except the sound of the wind at 185 miles an hour. And then the north-facing window, and this is very thick glass designed, you know, for hurricanes, the window burst with a sound like a cannon going off in your ear. Oh, my. And then glass and wind, and we went into the upstairs toilet, and so we spent two hours there. It died down. We came out utter devastation, and then the hurricane then moved around to the south and started again. The south window burst, bang, like this. 
now it's all coming the other way and we're back in the toilet again for another two hours. And then when it all died down, uh, I went downstairs. The tide had gone up. It was unbelievable. There were eight boats uh, right in front of the house, two of them actually leaning against the house, 45-foot sailboats. Oh, my. And to the south, there were another 10 boats on land, and to the north, another eight on land, all within a 200-yard radius. Oh, my. And so downstairs, the water had gone down, but it was mud and everything was upside down and we managed to, to, to in the main bedroom we dragged the mattress the wet mattress back onto the bed and it was the one part in the whole house where the rain wasn't actually coming through the roof and so we spent four nights in wet clothes on a wet bed and not sleeping very much it was a, a very interesting experience Oh, my. Brian, you've lived through uh, some of the most frightening eras of motor racing, uh, and then you lived through this. Which was worse? Well, you know, in a, I had three very bad motor racing accidents. The first one at the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa-Francorchamps in 1968 when the front suspension broke on my Cooper uh, Type 86B with a BRM V12 engine. I had an enormous accident, and I went right into a marshal's point. Three wheels came off. My right arm was trapped between the car and the baron. I felt it break, and then it caught fire. And so, you know, that was a pretty big accident. And then the second one in 71, when the steering failed on a Porsche 9083 on the Targa Florio in Sicily, and I hit a kilometer post, a stone kilometer post, right in the fuel tank, and it exploded. And I uh, did a very fair imitation of Joan of Arc. And anyway, <laughs> eventually recovered from that. And then in 1977, after winning three American Formula 5000 championships with a certain uh, Mario Andretti, finishing second for two <laughs> years, uh, they changed the rules. They made us put bodywork on our right. open-wheel single-seaters. And it was Can-Am. It was a marketing exercise because Can-Am in the mid-60s up to 1974 had been a very popular form of road racing. And the promoters of the tracks wanted to bring back the spectator attraction. So anyway, the first day for the first race of the new season in 1977, we go to San Jovite in Canada, mm-hmm. and I haven't seen the car before, but it's prepared by Jim Hall, one of the finest yes. and most brilliant racing engineers of all time. So I know it's going to be okay. So out I go, it's good. I come in the pits. Jim said, how is it? I said, it's good. And he said, what do you want, you know, to change the balance of the handling? And it was oversteering. You know, the back end was coming around a bit too much. So I said, take quarter of an inch off the front wing, lower it by quarter of an inch. And on the next lap, at 170 miles an hour, it took off. And it went about 40 feet in the air, turned over and came down. The roll bar broke. That broke my neck. C1 uh, split my sternum, broke three ribs. The roll bar broke. I went down on the road. So my helmet was worn away at each side. And when it dropped off the track, I was lucky because it landed on four wheels. And the track doctor was a heart specialist, so he got the heart going again. Then the ambulance blew a tire on the way to hospital. And when my wife, Marion, arrived from England the next morning there in the Montreal paper, was a photograph of the ambulance up on a jack, you know, with the guys changing the wheel. The rear door was open, and I'm not in the back, not looking too good. 
And the headline line said, Redman anymore, Redman is dead. So, when you have those kind of, you don't really know what's going on and you don't really feel anything at the time. Any pain comes later. So it's all in a dream and uh, yeah. you know, endorphins kick in. But sitting for four hours in the dark, listening to the roof tearing off and wondering whether the water's coming up is a different kind of experience. It's just remarkable. All those stories are uh, are so incredible that a quarter of an inch uh, at Saint-Jovite made that big of a difference. Just a quarter of an inch. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes. And about three years ago, I saw Jim Hall at the Road Racing Drivers Club meeting in uh, in uh, Long Beach, California, where I was lucky enough to win the first Long Beach Grand Prix in 1975. And Jim said to me, you know, Brian, he said, uh, I never really blamed myself for your accident at Zanjavit. <laughs> it was you who wanted the wing lowering by foot of an inch. You mentioned the Targa Florio, which uh, you won. Um, I said, Jim, I never blamed you either. <laughs> uh, the Targa Florio, which you won, you mentioned that, uh, a road race around Sicily that in today's world would never happen again. The only thing similar in today's world maybe would be something like the Isle of Man uh, motorcycle TT. Um, for those that maybe have never heard about it, can't imagine this actually taking place. Can you put us in that event and explain what the Targa Florio was like for a driver of that era? Well, I mean, the Targa Florio was really, of course, it's one of the world's oldest motor races that started in the early 1900s. Yeah. But it was uh, at the time when I did it, there had been some changes over the years to the layout of the roads. And uh, it was 44 miles to one circuit with over 700 corners per lap. Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, yeah, incredible. I mean, you go through three villages. There are people at each side of the road. There are no barriers anywhere. It's uh, an extraordinary uh, place. I, I heard you said once that it, it wasn't about being fast there. It was about being the fastest to survive. Well, yes. I mean, a uh, case in point, when we won in 1970, it was in a Porsche 9083. This was a car designed only for two races, the Nürburgring in Germany, 14 and a half miles to one circuit, 170 turns. And the Targa Florio, that's all it was designed for. It was based on a hill climb car. It was very, very light, 1,100 pounds. It had 370 horsepower and 1,100 pounds. Amazing. And so, you know, if you equate that sort of weight to power and compare it to, let's say, a NASCAR car today, it's probably not much different, the actual power-to-weight ratio. And the design was such that the gearbox, a five-speed gearbox, Porsche had put fifth gear out of the gate. So first, second, third, and fourth were in an H pattern, and fifth gear was up towards third and then across to the right and up again. So it was alongside third because you only used it once a lap, whilst you used first gear all the time. First gear normally is across to the left against the spring and back towards you. But right. that would have been very difficult on the Targa Florio. So 
in, in, when I took over from my great co-driver, the Swiss driver, Joe Siffert, mm-hmm. um, I got behind uh, Nino Vaccarella. Nino Vaccarella, the Italian, the Sicilian hero, a local teacher, school teacher. And he was in a Ferrari 512 PB, which is a much bigger car. The Porsche equivalent of that was the 917. So a big, heavy car. And I tried to pass him three times on my first lap out. And each time, he was going to push me off the road. I mean, there was no question about it. (laughs) So, not very gloriously, I stuck behind him for three laps. You know, that's uh, over 130 miles waiting for the pit stop. Because I knew that we'd be faster in our open car changing drivers than he would be in his closed car. Incredible. So you, you, that was the strategy that you worked and it paid off. Yes, because, you know, I, he wasn't going to let me pass. There was yeah. no way. Yeah. So, you know, those, those race circuits, you just said 700 turns at the Targa and 170 at the Nürburgring back in the, the original layout. Uh, how did you memorize all of that? Well, um, I, there was no way to memorize the Targa Florio, uh, except certain corners. You know, you look for the really dangerous corners that are blind, or, da, 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 or they have a mark in the road, because people spray paint on the road in some cases, where there's a certain danger area, you know, from a personal point of view. Or if you see a sign on a building saying, Attention, Nino, it's saying, be careful, Nino Vaccarella. <laughs> it's a place where he crashed the year before, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. But yeah. the Nürburgring, it, I, I learned it fairly quickly. But again, using the same basic idea, remembering, first of all, the really dangerous bits, the blind bits, and then the blind bits, which are followed by a fast bit, you know, that sort of thing, trying to memorize that. In fact, my first actual race at the Nürburgring was supposed to be with Jackie X, the Belgian wonder boy, or as he was known in the team, the young Brussels sprout, (laughs) (laughs) for the John Wire Ford GT40 program in 1968. And I'd never raced there. And um, so on Sunday morning, I said to John Wire, uh, John, I don't think I should drive with Jackie. I said, you know, he may, may possibly win and I don't know the track. And he said, ah, oh, very well, Jack. You and Hobbs, David Hobbs, can drive together. And I'll put uh, X with Hawkins, Paul Hawkins, who was normally David Hobbs' driver, co driver. Well, after the race, the wire came up to me and said, uh, Redmond, that's the last time I'm taking your advice. <laughs> I said, oh, well, why is that, John? He said, um, if you had driven with X, we might have won the race. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. I am hugely fascinated with the Porsche 917. And Brian Redman is a large part of the history of that car. We will talk about that when we return to the Ralph Sheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil. As your power steering pump ages, seal leaks may occur, causing the power steering system to lose fluid. Your power steering system may also develop an annoying squeal, and the steering may become more difficult to handle. By using Lucas Power Steering Stop Leak, you will stop the seal leaks, reduce slack in rack and pinion, 
eliminate the squeals and hard spots in your power steering system. It is guaranteed to stop seal leaks or your money back. Lucas Power Steering Stop Leak. It works. We might be a tick over 80 years old, but we have no thoughts on slowing down, and who said reinventing yourself isn't fun? The all-new Speedsport.com is here. New layout, new images, new video, and all the late-breaking news you expect from America's Motorsports Authority. We know you love sprints, midgets, late models, and everything else that gets dirty. Plus, we've got all your pavement series covered, too. The all-new Speedsport.com. You know, for guys who really love racing. Welcome back to the Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil. This is Lucas Oil's Engine Oil Stop Leak. You can get this and other great Lucas Oil products by going to lucasoil.com and finding a retailer near you. Lucas Oil, track-proven, race-ready. Brian, as I said uh, just before we went to the break, uh, Brian Redman again, of course, our guest here today. I am immensely fascinated by the Porsche 917 and uh, it is a large part of your history and you were there from the very beginning of that car wasn't as much of an evil handling beast as legend says it was yes in 1969 when it first came out you remember it, it was built in a tremendous rush by Porsche and this was all Ferdinand Pieck, who was the head of racing at that time and who recently passed away. I mean, he was a, an, an absolute, you know, force of nature, uh, immensely determined. And, you know, I've often said, only half jokingly, that if uh, Ferdinand Pieck had been Adolf Hitler, we'd all be speaking German now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yes. In 1969, it was built in a big hurry, um, and it was a, it was the handling was terrible. Nobody really knew why. We thought everybody thought you know there were ten drivers at that time for Porsche, six Germans, three English, Richard Atwood, Vic Alford, and myself, and one Swiss, Joseph. We all thought the chassis was bending because the handling was so you know poor. I mean, at Le Mans when I ran it in test of it at 1969. It just went from one side of the Molsam straight to the other by itself. You know, and you hoped when you reached the right-hand kink at over 200 miles an hour that you were on the left-hand side of the road to line up for it. And it goes, the first private owner to buy a 917, John Wolfe, the Englishman, yeah. his co-driver, Digby Martin, spun in a straight line going over the Molsam help at about 200 in practice. And he didn't hit anything. And he drove back to the pits and he got out and he went up to John. And he said, uh, thank you very much, John. I have now retired from motor racing. Wow. And all the, the English drivers tried to persuade John to let Herbert Linging start the race. He was the Porsche test driver. And John said, no, no, it's my car. I'm starting. And, of course, he was killed on the first lap when he lost control at the White House corner. Uh, I suppose the good news was that he took out half the Ferrari team at the same time. <laughs> People were fearful of getting in that car, weren't they? Well, I don't know that they were fearful of getting in the car particularly. There was a lot made of the fact that uh, the first race for the 917 was the Nürburgring. Well, you can't imagine a worse circuit for the 917. When none of the 10 factory drivers wanted to drive it, but the main reason was that they knew it would be slow, you know, against mm. the 908s that we were racing normally. And David Piper and Frank Gardner finished up driving it, but they were they were like, you know, 
14 or 15 miles behind at the end of the race and way down. So, yes, it was. What I didn't like about it was the, the rush to construct it. The, the method of construction was really a very old-fashioned method, even at that time. It was a, a aluminum space frame. And uh, even Ford and McLaren and Lola were building very good monocoques at that time. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that was the point. And, you know, if you, if you hit something at high speed in the 917, it broke in half across the cockpit. That's what I didn't like. When we're going 230 at Le Mans, over 200, 212 at Spa-Francorchamps, around 200 at Monza. That's what uh, that's what worried me. You know, and it didn't worry me in the race. You don't have time. But the night before the race, it's the thing that was going through my mind. Yeah, I can imagine as you were part of the uh, the Golf 917 uh, factory cars, the legendary machines. Um, they they also had problems with the wheels on those cars at one point, didn't they? Wheels coming off, yeah, um, not yeah, coming occasionally, apart. but yeah, that was a wheel nut, wheel nut problem. Uh, but you know, back in those days, punctures and wheels coming off were very frequent. It's very different to today. What did you ever feel like with the nine seventeen? You were actually driving it, or did you feel more like you were flying it when you would be <laughs> running down something like the Monson at two hundred and forty miles an hour? Well. I mean, in many ways, it was a bit like an aeroplane. You know, the cockpit didn't have many instruments. It had a load of lights. If a light came on, it meant you'd, you know, to go into the pits. Uh, at Spa Frankershom in 1970, by which time the 917 was good. You know, the handling was good. It had, uh, I took part in a test of the 917 at the Ostreich Ring. In Austria, in 1969, October 1969, it was a Porsche test, and the two drivers were Kurt Ahrens uh, and myself, uh, and the John Wire team were there because John Wire was going to take over the running of the official Porsche factory team in 1970. And it was John Wire's engineer, John Horseman, who pretty well found out what the problem was. It was aerodynamic. There was no force on the back of the car. So by 1970, it was good, you know, and wire was making changes to it, changes to the brakes, changes to the clutch, changes to this, changes to that. And the car was very good. But at Spa-Francorchamps, when my great co-driver, Joseph, went out in practice, he never came round. And this is the old circuit, you know, which was fearsomely fast. And uh, he'd had a puncture at very high speed. Pedro Rodriguez, our teammate, came in. You know, Sipitis stopped at the side of the track, and they put a wheel, a jack and a wheel brace into his 917, and they changed the wheel at the side of the track. Mm. And then they did it again. So that was twice in two laps. The uh, tire had come off the rim. And they said, now, Herr Edmund, it is your turn. (laughs) (laughs) I said... There's something the matter. Go slowly. Well, the fourth lap, I'm now flat out. I go past the Master King where Sippert had the problem. I'm on the return straight, which is uphill, and the corner at the end is a right-hander, blind, flat out, followed by a blind, flat out left-hander. And as I turned into the right-hander, the left rear tire came off the rim. I'm going 180 miles an hour. 
and it goes sideways, you know, and then I lose feeling of the way that I'm pointing the wheel in relation to the angle of the slide. And I'd read in a motor racing book, if that sort of thing happened, and if you let go of the steering wheel, the Ackerman would self-center it and it would go straight. And I, that's what happened. At about 130, I let go of the wheel and it went straight. Really? And I got back in the pits. And Sifford fell on the floor laughing. I said, what's the matter with you? He said, Bjorn, you are the color of your overalls. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next day we won the race, 1,000 kilometers, 600 miles. It was the fastest road race ever run at an average speed, including the pit stops, of 149 miles an hour. And the fastest single lap it was an average of 160 miles an hour. That is inc- that is incredible. Uh, in in your book, which I have here, and I've been showing the audience, uh, Brian Redman, daring drivers and and deadly tracks. You do a uh, really cool thing by taking the reader uh, on a lap in some of your favorite race cars, I guess, uh, um, that your most legendary cars. And you do a lap around Spa in the 917. While reading it, it's frightening uh, just sitting there. You can only imagine what it's like in the cockpit. Is that the most harrowing experience behind the wheel you had? Was it a 917 at Spa or was there, was there another one? I think it probably was, uh, again, as mentioned previously, because of the knowledge that if something went wrong, you know, if you made a mistake or something broke on the car and you hit something, that the the chances of injury or something worse were fairly great because of the weakness of that all aluminum space frame uh, chassis. For many people, they became familiar with the Porsche 917, especially in the Gulf livery through Steve McQueen's great movie, Le Mans. And you were a part of the filming of that. Uh, what was it like being on that, that movie? Well, it was exceedingly boring because we'd get <laughs> there at eight in the morning and we'd sit there all day whilst they're waiting for the right sunlight or, you know, and the, of course in the race itself, it rained pretty well all through the race. Yeah. And so they have water trucks going up and down the road. And then they had a remote control Porsche 917 lookalike. It was actually a a Lola T70 with a copy of the Porsche 917 body on it being controlled uh, by a helicopter from above by radio control. Of course, it had an enormous crash all on its own. And so I think the, the effects of the Le Mans film were fantastic, but actually working on it, um, was pretty boring, except it was well paid. You know, we got a, we got paid something like two hundred dollars a day. It was great. Did Did you have so, respect for McQueen as a driver? Yes, I mean he was like Paul Newman, extremely keen. And if it had been their full time job, as it was our full time job, they would have been as good as anybody. But they were real, real enthusiasts. Um, what isn't so well known is that I bought the uh, Porsche 917 that Solar Productions, the film production company, bought from Porsche for the film. And that car replicated Joe Sippert and my race car. So it's number 20. And in 1975, I bought that car. So this was the film car replicating Joe Sippert and my race car uh, for $18,000. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) 
Well, after that Canadian accident in 1977, I suddenly didn't have any money. I was broke pretty well, and I had to sell everything. And it's the reason why Marion and I and our children, James and Charlotte, moved to America in 1980 uh, because of that accident. And I sold that 917 to Richard Atwood, who'd won Le Mans in a 917 in 1970, but not that one. And some years later... He called me and he said he'd really like to sell it and would I sell it for him? And I said, well, Richard, I don't really like, you know, car brokers. I said, but I will, and you know, on one condition. He said, what's that? I said, that I am the only broker. If Eskimo Nell sells it in Anchorage, I get my commission. And he agreed. And uh, I didn't have much luck in trying to place it privately. And he finally said, you know, I need to sell it. I said, okay, we'll take it to uh, Monterey in August for yeah. auction. And I sold it there for $1.2 million. <laughs> it's now valued at about $20 million. Yeah. And it belongs to Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. Incredible car. That's uh, all part of the reason why I find that machine so fascinating. And when you see one in person, you just can't forget it. We will be right back with more of The Ralph Shaheen Show with Brian Redmond right after this. There is less than one hundredth of an inch of motor oil protecting your car's engine. Friction and heat causes engine oil to experience thermal breakdown, weakening its ability to protect the engine and its parts. Lucas Heavy Duty Oil Stabilizer is specially formulated to resist thermal breakdown, protect vital engine parts, and extend the life of your engine. It also stops smoking, knocking, and oil consumption in worn engines. Lucas Heavy Duty Oil Stabilizer. Keep that engine alive. Race fans, it's Ralph Shaheen, and like you, I have a huge passion for racing. With the most in-depth features on racers, series, and events, no one covers racing better than America's original motorsports publication, Speedsport. Get your subscription to Speedsport Magazine today at Speedsport.com. here on the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. You know, it's our 85th anniversary of Speedsport. Brian Redmond certainly knows that because he's been in the pages of Speedsport throughout his racing career. Speedsport's been a big part of your career, hasn't it, Brian? Yes, it has indeed. I mean, for as long as I can remember. Yeah. Well, if you'd like to get a copy of Speedsport or start your subscription, just go to Speedsport.com. Brian, not only were you a Porsche factory driver, but uh, you were a Ferrari factory driver, but it took a couple of uh, propositions before they finally got you to uh, to lock in, didn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, in 1968, because I just turned professional in 67, uh, when I turned professional, it was a friend of mine who said to me, you know, do you want to turn professional? I said, what does that mean? He says, I'll pay you 30 quid a week. That was about $60 a week, guaranteed for a year with a car and a mechanic. And by 68, I was racing professionally, you know, proper professionally, for John Wire. And I was doing Formula 2, and, you know, I was doing doing a lot. I was doing Formula 1 for Cooper, and uh, Ferrari called me, and they said, uh, Brian, come to Maranello test at Modena, da, da, da. so I go and do a Formula 2 test, 
And uh, during the test at lunchtime, uh, engineer Mauro Fogieri said to me, Brian, you see under the trees across the road in the raincoat? I said, yes. He said, this is Signal Ferrari. <laughs> so what he's saying is go faster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they say, would I like to drive at the Nürburgring on the south circuit? The south circuit is much shorter than the main circuit. It's about five miles around, but still very, very twisty, up and down hills, just like the main circuit. Anyway, you know, Ferrari gave me some uh, mistruths and uh, tell him, giving me bad information during the practice and everything. And in the race, on the third lap, I got a stone through my goggle. I go back to the pits. You know, I've dived four miles slowly with no goggles. Uh, forget, what's the matter? What's the matter? And I pointed at my eyes. He says, okay, okay, wear your spare goggle. And I didn't have any. He said, take Xs. He gave me Xs, which were dark green. Were pretty good in the sunlight, but not so good under the trees. But anyway, I drove like a maniac. And I finished fourth and set a new lap record. And I was gaining two seconds a lap on the leader. So when I got back into the hotel, I just sat on my bed for 15, 20 minutes with my head in my hands, thinking about it all. Go to dinner. Fagari disappears. He comes back. Brian, I speak with Enzo Ferrari. For the rest of the year, you drive a Formula 2A, Formula 2. And at the end of the year in September, Formula Uno at Monza, the Italian Grand Prix. Uh (laughs) And I said, said, "Uh, no, thank you. (laughs) He said, what do you mean? And no, thank you. I said, I said, if I drive for Ferrari, I'll be dead by the end of the year. So, <laughs> anyway, at the end of 70, I'd made a foolish retirement to South Africa, to Johannesburg, come back very quickly, no drive. Uh, had a that very bad accident on the Targa Florio in May when I was burnt. And so I was having a very bad year. But at the end of the year, the man that I was driving Formula 5000 in England for, Sid Taylor, he borrowed a BRM, British Racing Motors, Can-Am car. It had been built for George Eaton, the Canadian stores millionaire. And we took it to Imola in Italy. It rained. The car was fantastic in the rain. And I lapped the field, including a factory Ferrari. Uh-huh. Fagheri came up to me. Brian, he said, what are you doing next year? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, I now have two great years with Ferrari in the 312 PB, and we won the World Sports Car Champion, Manufacturers Championship in 1972. Yeah, people don't turn Ferrari down often, do they? That's rare that you get a second crack at it like that. Uh, it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did he uh, put pressure on drivers? What was he like that way, Enzo? Um, well, of course, I only ever met Enzo once, but the whole Ferrari culture at that time was very much to put a lot of pressure on the drivers. And it was done by various means, especially the partisan Ferrari press who would take a liking to one driver more than another and terrible. You know, you read the history of Ferrari and all of the drivers, they all had tremendous problems. And I knew about that. I mean, that was also part of the reasoning that I uh, decided not to do it. Wait, you said you only met with him once or twice. How was he in person? Did was he warm? Was he gracious or Oh <laughs> Well, I only met him once and that was in sixty eight when I did the test at Modena and I'd gone to lunch at Maranello and there were probably forty managers and uh, top technicians there. 
And the dining room was fairly big, and I came in at uh, the front door, and as I came in, Enzo Ferrari was at the far end of the dining room, and he stood up, and he walked towards me. And behind him on one side was uh, Engineer Giacomo Caliri, and on the other side, Engineer Mauro Foggieri. And he stops in front of me, and he was surprisingly tall. You know, a lot of Italians are on the shorter side. But he was tall, and I'm looking up at him, and I start to raise my hand, you know, to shake hands. And he shot out his right hand, and he got hold of my left cheek, and he shook me by the cheek like this. And then he spoke the only two words that he ever said to me. Nice boy. <laughs> <laughs> like so like my grandmother would, yes. <laughs> you drove for so many remarkable teams. Uh, for Ferrari as a works driver, for Porsche as a works driver. You were in the Ford GT program. All these incredible organizations. And as you look back on it, um, is there one that stands out above the other that you thought really had it all together, or were they all just strong in different areas? Well, of course, you know, because I was so lucky to drive for so many factory teams. When you, when you see private teams, how they struggle and the facilities, you know, that the factory has... It makes you wonder why anybody bothers <laughs> <laughs> racing against them. And so all of the those factory teams, Ferrari and Porsche, were really fantastic. And BMW, you know, yeah. won the C-Ring uh, 12 hours in 75 and the Daytona 24 hours in 76 and a BMW CSL. And I was racing uh, that uh, model of car at uh, Laguna Seca just in August of this year. So they were all fantastic. But, of course, for me, because of the great time I had for four years driving for Carl Haas, who was the Lola importer for mm -hmm. North America, and for Jim Hall of Chaparral Cars, those were, my, for me, were my four best years in racing. What a great team. You know, Franz Weiss, the chief engineer, uh, also built the engines and did the test driving at Rattlesnake Raceway in Midland, Texas. Yeah, and Troy Rogers, a great, great fabricator. Davy Evans, my English mechanic. Uh, Tony Connor, another English mechanic who did the gearboxes. It was a four-man team. When you look how many guys there are today, uh, and looking back at those days, they, they were fantastic. And let's say the main reason, really, that I managed to beat Mario for two years was we had better reliability. I mean, in four years, when that 302 cubic in Chevrolet racing engine, gave 500 horsepower and wasn't, you know, tremendously reliable. But in four years, I had one engine failure, and that was in practice. So in the races, I never had an engine failure. Amazing. That is incredible. The glory days of Formula 5000. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to wrap things up with Brian Redman. One of the main reasons for poor vehicle performance is a dirty fuel system. It can cause decreased fuel economy and actually do harm to your engine over time. By adding mucus fuel treatment to your vehicle, it cleans and lubricates the entire fuel system, pump, carburetors, fuel injectors, and valves as you drive. It also improves your vehicle's performance. It's a non-solvent product designed to protect both gasoline and diesel engines. Lucas Fuel Treatment. It works. We will be celebrating Speed Sports' 85th anniversary this year. Incredible how time flies by. 
To help commemorate the occasion, we've unveiled the Vault Collection of merchandise. A really cool variety of t-shirts, hats, posters, and a lot more. It's all available right now in the store at speedsport.com. Shop for yourself or get a gift or two for your racing buddies. The Vault Collection of Merchandise, available now in the store at speedsport.com. We are back with Brian Redman here on the Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil. Lucas Oil, track proven, race ready. Find a Lucas Oil retailer at lucasoil.com. The latest issue of Speedsport is out. Robert Hype on the cover. Start your subscription today at speedsport.com. Brian, we touched on Formula 5000 uh, just before the last break. Um, that was an open wheel series. It was an impressive series. Um, a lot of people maybe don't know much about it these days, but in its heyday, Formula 5000 was one of the biggest racing series on the planet. Um, your Formula One career, you you were there, you dabbled in it, but it never really went to the levels that your sports car career did. Did Formula 5000 kind of fill an open wheel gap for you? I, mean, I, I never actually drove a single seat until I was 30. But I loved uh, I loved the single seaters. I like them better than the sports cars because they're so much more accurate. You see everything that's happening with the wheels, da da da. And so yes, in Formula One, I never liked any of it really. The politics, the, the bitterness between the drivers to some degree and the teams. And uh, my best result was third place in the Spanish Grand Prix in 1968 in the Cooper, and then fifth at Monaco and fifth at the Nürburgring, the German Grand Prix for McLaren in the M19. But I never I never really enjoyed it. I, mean, I had such a great time, you know, in 5,000. Of course, I guess it was probably easier, and I've always been, you know, one to take the easy way out. <laughs> well, you also uh, drove the revolutionary T600 Lola in IMSA and went on to the IMSA championship as well. Uh, that prototype car was incredibly different than anything else anybody had seen in IMSA up until that time. Yes, uh, it, what IMSA were trying to do, and this was John Bishop, uh, they were trying to break Porsche domination. Porsche had won every race except, I think, one for three years. And so they took the risk, really, of introducing a new category. And that was done in 1980. The rules were written. And uh, I got Lola. I was working for Carl Haas at that time. You know, due to the injuries I'd had in 1977, I was doing very little racing. I was working for Carl Haas in Highland Park, uh, Chicago, Illinois. And I'd read the rules for IMSA for the new prototype series and said to Carl, you know, Lola can build a car to these new rules with a Chevy or a Ford engine that can win the championship. And so eventually, you know, I left and I became the team manager and the driver for Woods racing ralph cook and uh, roy j woods jr from oklahoma and so yeah we had a great great season my crew chief john bright uh, looked after the car we did 10 races we were first five times and second five times and no dnf's great series yeah no doubt about it we talked about the 917 quite a bit and we we touched on Can-Am, but you also were a part of one of the most legendary Can-Am cars, the Porsche 917. Here we go again. Uh, the 10 and the 30. Um, the 10 was the first variation of it. The 30, uh, the legendary Sunoco car that Mark Donahue made so famous. Um, how were those cars to drive? 
Well, as you may imagine, with a thousand horsepower, they weren't particularly easy. They had wide tyres, very wide rear tyres, well, and front tyres. I think they were about 18, maybe more, 18 inches wide. And they had good downforce from their rear wing and their front bodywork. So they were very fast. Uh, they were difficult mostly because of the uh, throttle lag due to the turbo. And so with a normal race car, you can balance it in the turn, you know, with the throttle. A little bit of oversteer, da 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 But with the 917.10 and the 30, you couldn't. There was so much throttle. Like you had to time when you opened the throttle for when you thought the car would be more or less straight coming out of the turn. So it wasn't an easy car to drive. No, doesn't sound like it. But you're still driving to this day. You mentioned driving uh, one of the BMW CSLs uh, recently out at Monterey at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca during the recent Rolex Monterey Motorsports reunion. Vintage car racing has become a huge part of your life, and it's a wonder. It's always wonderful to run into you at those events. Uh, what are you doing now? You talked about that event. Where else can fans see you still getting behind the wheel, or maybe hear? some of these stories in person well the next thing coming up is the new uh, chattanooga motor car festival which is october the 11th 12th and 13th and this is being promoted by uh, to chattanooga businessmen the defour brothers primarily byron defour and they're putting huge effort into it and there is a time trial element where the cars can go down the side of the river, uh, you know, against the clock, and they rally, and they concord d'elegance, and it promises to be a, a huge show, and that's where I'm appearing next. Well, um, and you also promote it. some events yourself yeah. still, correct? Sorry, could you repeat that? I said you still promote some events yourself, correct? Well, I, I used to do quite a lot of promotion with our son, James, but the only one we do today is called Targa 66, and it's Palm Beach International Raceway, and that'll be in February of 2020, on the 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. But this isn't a race meeting. It's a gathering of car people who want to exercise the cars, but we do get a great turnout of very unusual cars that you don't usually see. Well, Brian, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show. Uh, if you're going to be in the Chattanooga area in October, I encourage you to swing by, check out that what sounds like an amazing event, and uh, get an opportunity to visit with Brian. His book is Brian Redmond, Daring Drivers, Deadly Tracks. Uh, I'm a proud owner of a copy of it and have thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Brian, it is always a pleasure seeing you at the racetrack, my friend, and I could listen to your stories for hours, and uh, thank you for coming on the Ralph Shaheen Show today. Well, thank you very much for your time, Ralph. It was uh, a lot of fun. Look forward to seeing you soon. Brian Redmond, thanks for listening here on the Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil.